And I'm Sarah. And you're listening to Dead Cat on the Line, an internationally focused true crime podcast. Where two very anxious people overanalyze everything. No cats are harmed in the making of this podcast. today that I feel like a lot of people in the U.S. would recognize, especially psychology students, because it's a case that's used a lot as an example of a supposedly common phenomenon. I will be talking about Kitty Genovese Mm -hmm. and her murder. See, like, even in the U.K., we've heard of this one because I did, I studied some psychology at Mm -hmm. university. It's about bystander effect, right? Yes, that is what this case is used to illustrate a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Recent discoveries about the case and how it was kind of reported and handled make me kind of question whether this is actually an accurate portrayal of bystander effect. But that's something I will get to later, so bookmark that for future reference. To start with, Kitty was born Catherine Susan Genovese on July 7th, 1935. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was the eldest of five children in an Italian-American family. They lived in Brooklyn, New York, uh, which is still a pretty popular place to live. But at the time, it wasn't like that great of a place to live, you know? Yeah, like it wasn't Uh, like hipster fashionable. No, no. It was... I feel like it was a pretty popular place for Italian-Americans at the time. So there were, like, a lot of Italian families in that area. And for those of you who know a lot about immigration in the U.S., immigrants haven't always been or still aren't treated all that great and usually kind of live in situations that aren't as affluent as a lot of born and bred Americans, I guess you would call them. But she was raised um, in Brooklyn. She was raised Catholic. and um, I was about to ask that. <laughs> yes. Her family was very much Catholic, which is very interesting considering uh, who she grows up to be. Ooh, but ooh, okay. <laughs> she went to an all-girls high school where she was noted to be self-assured and had a sunny disposition. After high school, she moved to New Canaan, Connecticut, away from New York, after her mother witnessed a murder. Oh, so mom witnesses a murder and is like, no, 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 we're getting the hell out of town. Yes, but Kitty actually goes back to Brooklyn. She either goes back to Brooklyn or she decides to stay there while the family moved to Connecticut. Okay, how old is she at that point? I think she was in her early 20s at that point, so at the period of time where she could live on her own. She got married, but it was annulled in 1954. It was a very short marriage. I don't think it even lasted an entire year. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, so after her marriage was annulled, she worked clerical jobs for a while, and then she worked as a bartender... And then she was a bar manager at Ev's 11th Hour Bar in Queens, New York. Okay, can you, for 
those of us um, who have never been to the the US, just explain, for example, like some of the cultural differences between maybe like Queens and New York and Brooklyn? You don't find like a whole ton of differences. It's mostly just the area of New York that you're in. Queens and Brooklyn both are, they're like well known, but they aren't where the rich people live. Okay. Really. So it's more common working class. Working as a bar manager down there, I'm she probably wasn't in like the best area. Queens is kind of on Long Island across East River from Manhattan, so it's not in Manhattan itself, which is the center of the city. She was a manager at the bar in Queens and she actually lived in Kew Gardens, which I believe is in Queens. It's just like a neighborhood in Queens, where she shared her apartment with her girlfriend, Ooh. Mary Ann Zelonko. I may have messed up her last name. See, but... this is when this is when just then you were like you said about the the Catholic thing. I was like, you, her too. Yeah. Her too? Do we match? Do we match? <laughs> Um, you do match. <laughs> you match. For those who are following along at home, I I was raised Catholic, so really feeling the affinity as <laughs> another like LGBT Catholic. Yeah. Also, what is this? Is this like you said this is like the fifties, right? Yeah. This is when this murder happens. It's nineteen sixty four. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so this is like way before Stonewall. It hasn't happened yet. Yeah, so it's um it's a pretty radical thing, and actually you find that most publications that cover this murder don't even mention that Marianne was her girlfriend. It actually took quite a lot of digging in recent years to discover that she was actually the girlfriend and not just a friend. Woo, gotta love that homophobic erasure. <laughs> Most um, yeah, so so they were sharing an apartment. Um, Kitty worked pretty late nights at the bars, as you do, because that's that's when the bars are hopping, really. On the night of the attack, mm-hmm. Kitty left the bar at around 2.30 a.m. on March 13th, 1964. And she began driving home in her red Fiat, which is a type of car, obviously. So, Winston Mosley, who is the murderer, he spotted her while she was at a stoplight on Hoover Avenue. Right. And he decided to follow her in his car. Can I just say, as somebody that has had that exact thing happen, that it's so scary. It, Uh, It really is. I don't drive, but I was once held at a red stoplight and a bunch of drunk guys came and actually tried to circle my bike and Ugh. pull me off it. Yeah. Um, and I managed to get away, but, like, that specific thing of being spotted just going about your day and being targeted, particularly at night, is such a... It, it's very scary. Mm-hmm. Like, even when someone just happens to be following the same route that I am in my car, I get very anxious about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyways... A bit about Winston Mosley. He was from Ozone Park, Queens. And at the time, he was working as a Remington Rand tab operator. 
had no criminal record and was married with three children. So he was not like was not somebody that's done this before. No, he was a pretty upstanding, respectable guy by all accounts. So he followed her home and he parked at a corner bus stop on Austin Street, mm-hmm. which was along the road of Kitty's apartment building. He then approached Kitty with his hunting knife. At this point, Kitty ran towards the front of her building and she was yelling, help, 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 pretty loudly. But Mosley still followed, overtook her, and stabbed her twice in the back. Just reminds me of a thing, and I don't know if you were taught this, but in self-defense classes, like which I was at at like 10 or so, they teach young women now, you don't say help because nobody will come and help. You shout fire yeah. because people come out and look where the fire is. How screwed up is that as a society that people will come out for a fire but they won't come out for an individual do you know what yeah, I mean? yeah for sure anyway sorry carry on so she is stabbed twice in the back yeah and to illustrate this a little bit better kitty lived in an apartment building that like had two entrances there was the back entrance and the entrance on austin street uh, okay. which is the one that she ran towards Austin Street also had this big apartment building across the street that was several stories tall. So it's it's an area where there would be a lot of people. So after he stabbed her twice in the back, Kitty actually yelled, Oh my god, he stabbed me. Help me. Okay. So this, this is where the bystander effect comes in because several neighbors heard the cry and the bystander effect is all about like people not coming to help her even after hearing the cry because they assume someone else will it's like the more people that are uh, that witness an event the more almost like paralysis sets in almost. yes like you kind of wait to see what the group will do if someone else isn't if other people aren't doing it you take your cues from them and you're like okay well we don't need to absolutely The thing is, though, several neighbors heard the cry, but only a few recognized it as a cry for help. And many of them, many of them didn't hear the full cry. So they may have heard the help me part, but they didn't hear the he stabbed me part. Or um, they may have heard, oh, my God. And that's that's all they heard. Robert Moser, who lived on the seventh floor of the Mowbray Apartments, which is the... um, apartment building across the street from hers on Austin Street. He is one of the few who actually did hear the cry for help and recognize it. Mm -hmm. And from his window, he shouted down, let that girl alone at Mosley. Mosley then ran away at the yell, which gave Kitty time to make her way to the rear entrance of the building. The problem was that she was seriously injured, and so she wasn't able to actually make it inside and this is the thing like i think it's easy as a person who has never been stabbed and Mm -hmm. does not want to be stabbed at any point in the future to be like oh well what is her logic there like why would you not go straight in but i'm like you're not thinking at that point you're just going i have to get somewhere where this person isn't yeah i assume that she had that kind of logic where 
he stabbed me, I have to get off this street where he mm-hmm. would know to find me again. Yeah. So she she went towards the rear entrance of the building um, and wasn't able to make it inside. Unfortunately, the rear of the building was out of sight of witnesses, and so no one saw her collapse in the hallway at the back of the building, where a locked door prevented her from going inside. So the thing is, and she was so close. She was so close. So witnesses did see Mosley after he was scared away by uh, Robert Moser's yell. They saw him get in his car and drive away. He returned ten minutes later wearing a wide-brimmed hat to shield his face. Are you serious? Yeah, and he then systematically searched until he found Kitty at the back of her building in the hallway. Oh no. So, out of view of the main street and those who saw and heard the initial attack... Mosley then proceeded to stab Kitty several more times before then raping her, robbing her, and running away again. I have a question, and I don't know if I want to know the answer to this. Like, is she conscious at this point? Because you said she's collapsed. Yeah. I believe at this point she is conscious. And the attack lasted approximately half an hour. The second attack. That's such a long time. It, it really it, is. I know it doesn't sound... You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't sound like it if you think about something that isn't being attacked. Mm-hmm. It's, do you know what I mean? Like, having, like, a class or, like, a work shift or something that's half... It would be nothing. Yeah. But, like, to be consistently attacked in that way for mm-hmm. 30 minutes... And, I mean, it was it was very late at night, and the back entrance of her building, actually, it's not on a street. It's pretty much in an alleyway. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not someplace that people would just happen to be walking by at, like, 2 a.m. in the morning. And, like, so this Robert guy didn't go down and check on her because he saw her run off and assumed, I don't know? Yeah, I'll, I'll get back to that. Okay. So, Sophia Ferrer, um, who was a neighbor of Kitty's, she actually found Kitty shortly after Mosley ran away again. And she held Kitty until the ambulance arrived at 4.15 a.m. Unfortunately, Kitty died en route to the hospital of asphyxiation, which was caused by a puncture to her lungs. Right. Six days later, Mosley was apprehended by police during a burglary. And while in custody, Mosley confessed to killing Kitty, stating that the motive for the attack was simply to kill a woman. What a bastard. Yeah. He said he preferred to kill women because they were easier and didn't fight back. He detailed the attack, stating that he got up that night around 2 a.m. and drove through Queens to find a victim, leaving his wife asleep at home. Can you imagine being this guy's wife and this all coming out? 
Mm-hmm. Well, it gets a little bit worse because he also confessed to murdering and sexually assaulting two other women and committing between 30 and 40 burglaries. Subsequent psychiatric examinations suggested that Mosley was a necrophile. So this guy was seriously disturbed. And he used that because at the trial, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Can I ask, like, what do you what qualifies as not guilty by reason of, usan- of insanity in the United States? So when someone wants to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, they do have to undergo a psychiatric examination mm-hmm. by a psychiatrist that is, like, appointed by the court. That psychiatrist then determines whether the person was... Um, what would fall under insane, so, like, not in control of themselves whatsoever, Mm. Um, whether, yeah, at the time of the attack, whether by, like, effect of medication or just plain insanity, like a a psychiatric attack of some sort um, Mm. that would kind of be like, this is why this happened, and it wasn't something that was completely in their control. So it's, like, Um, something by which you can't differentiate between the act being right or wrong in that Exactly, moment. yes. Okay. So he pled not guilty by reason of insanity, but the jury deliberated for seven hours and okay. sentenced Mosley to death for the murder of Kitty Genovese. Okay. So they did not find him insane at the time. I feel the fact that it's repeated attacks as well. Yeah. And the fact that he then comes back to finish the job eliminates the I had lost complete control of my senses. Yeah. Because that requires a level of, I think, both forethought and being aware of the wrongness of your actions in order to return, even if it seems like it's compulsive. Yeah. On June 1st, 1967, the New York Court of Appeal Heels actually found that Mosley should have been able to argue that he was medically insane at the sentence hearing when the trial court found that he had been legally sane, meaning he pled not guilty in the actual trial by reason of insanity. The trial and the sentencing happened separately. And so at the sentencing, he should have been able to argue that again, despite being found legally sane at the trial. Right. So that that would have brought the whole process in again. Okay. Because of this, his sentence was reduced from death to lifetime imprisonment. And he died on March 28, 2016 at the Clinton Correctional Facility in New York. He had served 52 years, making him one of the longest serving inmates in the New York State prison system. Good riddance, to be honest. <laughs> At least he was never released on yeah, parole or anything. Yeah, I feel anything. like that's... I know it's only like a very small convert, but it's something. Because again, I know we've discussed this out of recording, but in terms of like the actual punishment part of crime and punishment, I have mixed feelings on long sentences, but then there are cases like this, and I'm like, yeah, no. You, you, life should mean life. 
Yeah, and I also personally have mixed feelings on the death penalty used mm -hmm. as a punishment as well. And so death versus life imprisonment, it, it's hard for me to really decide which is better. Life imprisonment at least means that he has to spend the rest of his years in a prison, atoning for what he did. Again, I like it's it's also complicated for me to decide on, but yeah, as as somebody that was raised, born and raised in a country where there is no death penalty, and actually Japan does have the death penalty, mm -hmm. um, and has executed people in the last year under that death penalty. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's hard to be the one to make the judgment call on this. That's the thing. I don't, I don't want to necessarily have the power of life and death over someone else. I think Same. that's what it is. So, like I mentioned earlier, this case is used a lot in psychology books as an example of what's called the bystander effect, yeah. which is a social psychological phenomenon in which individuals are less likely to offer help to a victim when other people are present, for the same mm. reasons that we discussed earlier. Yeah. And the greater number of bystanders the less likely it is that one of them will help. The reason why this is used as an example of the bystander effect is due to an article that was published in the New York Times nearly two weeks after the murder. The article claimed that 38 witnesses saw or heard the attack, but none of them called the police or came to her aid. The guy who got this story into the New York Times, Abe Rosenthal, okay. he heard about the case over lunch with New York Police Commissioner Michael J. Murphy, and then assigned reporter Markin Gansberg to cover the incident. Mm -hmm. uh, Rosenthal later quoted Murphy as saying, the Queen's story is one for the books. The fact that that's a thing, like, you can just go and have, you know, the chief of police and you can go and have lunch with him. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. that sure is a thing. That is a thing. And it's more common than you would think. Yeah. But, as Murphy predicted, yeah, the article became a sensation and the public view of the case became centered around a quote from the article by an unidentified neighbor who is later identified as Carl Ross, who I'll okay. get back to. Okay. The neighbor saw part of the attack, but deliberated before finally getting another neighbor to call the police, saying, I didn't want to get involved. This view stuck with the public for years, and it was helped by a book that Rosenthal actually wrote later that year regarding mm -hmm. the case. And it prompted an inquiry into what would later become known as the bystander effect. I have a question. In that book, is there mm -hmm. any mention of Marianne? I don't believe so. Like, what happened to her? I don't know if you're going to cover this and I've just completely messed up your structure and I apologize. I'm but pretty sure that I will get back to her later on in my notes. I'll put a pin in it then. If I don't get back to her, remind me and I will discuss her. Okay. Immediately after the story broke, actually, WNBC police reporter Danny Meehan, I think is mm -hmm. how you pronounce that, he found 
found many inconsistencies in the article. He asked Gansberg why his article didn't include the fact that many of the witnesses didn't feel that a murder was happening. To which Gansberg replied, It would have ruined the story. Ah! Oh, I can't even explain how much I hate that. Yeah, and Mihan not wanting to jeopardize his career by attacking Abe Rosenthal, who was very high up in chain of command at the New York Times. He kept his findings a secret for the most part, though he did... This guy, this, this guy who isn't Abe, right? Sorry, I missed his name. Yeah, yeah, Abe Rosenthal. And this other dude, he's, his name is... Danny Meehan. Danny Meehan is... So he is a reporter at WNBC, which is more of what you would call a local... I was going to say, like, it's a local paper, he's lower ranking. He's lower ranking, so basically confronting Abe Rosenthal, who is a big name in news, would basically be tanking his career. That's professional suicide. Exactly, which is why he kept it a secret for the most part and didn't pursue it. He did pass on his notes to fellow WNBC reporter Gabe Pressman, however, and... Pressman later taught a journalism course in which some of his students confronted Rosenthal over the article. And yes! Rosenthal was very much not pleased by it. <laughs> yes! That's so satisfying. Yeah. They literally called him up and confronted him about the inconsistencies and why he let the article be published. Oh my god. And... So, like more the... so students plural. Yes. Yes, these were multiple students. It was basically the class called him. <laughs> yeah. And um, he was not happy about it. And I bet he wasn't. Gave a very short reply, basically being like, it was my professional opinion that this needed to be told. Sure Essentially, it was. Sure it was. Researchers have since confirmed the serious flaws in the New York Times article. And in 2016, the New York Times even called its own reporting of the event flawed, stating that the original story grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. I love how this is turning into everybody shit on Abe. <laughs> Loving that, I have to say. Yeah. Regarding the inconsistencies in the article, in truth, only about... A dozen or so witnesses actually heard or saw portions of the attack, and due to the layout of the apartment complex and the fact that the crime took place in two different locations, mm -hmm. none of them saw or were aware of the entire incident. So many were completely unaware that an assault or a homicide had taken place. In fact, only one witness, Joseph Fink, Mm -hmm. was aware that she was stabbed in the first attack. And only Carl Ross, who I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. was aware she was stabbed in the second attack. So no one knew she was stabbed both times. So like you were saying about those two, so they just what went back? Because I know Joseph shouted at the guy. She runs off. And well, goes back. yeah. Joseph Fink and the guy who shouted down. Yeah. When they saw her get up, because they were so high up, oh. when they saw her 
get up after the attack and start walking towards the back of the building, they assumed mm-hmm. she was fine. And you can just see how that would happen as well, how someone could make that mistake. The majority of witnesses only knew of the first attack. Okay. Um, actually, the first floor of Kitty's apartment building was filled with small shops, all of which were closed at that time. So really, any witnesses that saw this attack were higher up than where the attack happened. Okay. Which, that would obviously obscure the perception of what would act, what was actually happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the majority of the witnesses, including the first witness to have called the police, would have seen this attack from the apartment building, but they also would have seen Kitty get up after Mosley was scared off and walk away from the crime scene. And so considering this, many of them may not have felt the need to alert the police since the attack had been thwarted and the victim seemed okay. You know what's so upsetting about this case is you can see exactly how everybody thought, based on the information they had, thought and behaved the way they did. And other witnesses um, thought what they saw or heard when Mosley first approached Kitty, not knowing that she ended up getting attacked because no one saw the full thing. Mm -hmm. They actually thought what was happening was a domestic quarrel or a drunken brawl or a group of friends that were leaving the bar that was just down the street from the apartment building. Oh, there's a bar just down the street. Yeah. It's not the one that she worked at, but it was a bar and it was open at that time of night. And so many of the people who heard things from the Mm -hmm. attack assumed it was just coming from the bar patrons. And also, I think the thing that you just mentioned that I think is worth like commenting on is the fact it was at night. Because I know like you, you have kept saying that, but it's only yeah. just then it sunk in for me. And, and it's very late at night. This is like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. <laughs> like what it, kind of... I don't, there's not that many street lights or anything, I would imagine. No, the Austin Street would have been the street that was most lit up at that time because it was more of a main street, which is why the majority of witnesses saw that attack mm-hmm. and um, like, I think the thing is everybody when we hear about this case now in terms of like the public mythos imagines mm-hmm. it was in broad daylight that's what I've always it, imagined yes. yes no this was this was very late 2 3 a.m very dark out most people probably would have been asleep and if they were woken up by it they probably would have dismissed it because of the bar down the street oh when i used to i used to cat sit in london all the time mm-hmm. and i don't know if you know this but like wild foxes there's like a big wild urban fox problem in london which is <laughs> i did not know that <laughs> and they like have no fear of humans and they'll go through bins and stuff but if you've ever heard a fox scream it sounds very similar to a human woman Ooh. screaming so the amount of times that I have heard that noise, I've gone and looked out of a window. I haven't been able to see anything. And I've gone, it was probably a fox. Yeah. Back. If you're if you're just, like, used to those sounds, it's easy to dismiss it. Mm-hmm. And we're very good, like, we've said, we were saying in one of our recording our episodes we recorded earlier today, we're very good at dismissing our own instincts and our own yes. feelings about things. And we'll talk ourselves out of it. Yeah. So, anyways, the second attack 
happened in a stairwell that was well hidden from view due to the architecture of the building. Like I mentioned, the back entrance was in more of an alleyway rather than a street. And it was kind of in an area that it didn't look like a lot of windows looked out onto that area. So it would have been very difficult to see, especially mm -hmm. because she was in a stairwell rather than the alleyway itself. So few people would have been able to see that Mosley had returned. And yes. after the initial attack punctured her lungs, it is very unlikely that Kitty was able to scream at any volume, meaning the majority of the second attack likely went unnoticed by witnesses. Because mm -hmm. she, yeah, because you can't, you wouldn't be able to get any kind of volume at that point. No, you could not get any sound out. You would be struggling just to breathe. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing about this whole case being part of the bystander effect that people latch onto is that no one called the police. Mm -hmm. Records actually show that the earliest phone calls to police were unclear and so were not given high priority. There were at least two calls to the police regarding the incident, possibly more that were simply brushed off due to the calls not really reporting the true severity of the crime because mm -hmm. most witnesses didn't know. Yeah. One witness said his father called the police after the initial attack and reported a woman was beat up but got up and was staggering around. Mm -hmm. So that kind of call would have been given pretty low priority since it wasn't actively happening. Yeah. Carl Ross, who I mentioned earlier, he also called the police after Sophie Ferrer, who held Kitty until the ambulance arrived, called for someone to do so. That is, yeah, I've heard as well, like... Um... Sorry, I'll remind me later because I have heard something about that as a technique to break bystander effect. Yeah. So Ross was actually a frequent guest at Kitty's apartment. He heard noises that night and after deliberation had cracked open his door to investigate. He saw Kitty on the ground still alive and attempting to speak and mostly attacking her. And he shut the door and called a friend asking what to do. And the friend said not to get involved. What? Yeah. I'll get back to that. Give okay. me a few minutes. So Ross then called another neighbor who told him to call the police and that he could use her phone. Mm -hmm. Ross climbed out of his window and crawled across the roof to her apartment oh my where he God. then called the police. This seems to corroborate what the New York Times story said about him. Mm -hmm. The fact is, what usually gets left out is that Carl Ross was a gay man. Oh. And he was also one that suffered from anxiety. So, for good reason, as homosexuality wasn't very accepted at the time, much of the police force at the time viewed homosexuality as a menace to society. And in fact, the police initially focused in on Marianne as the culprit once they realized she and Kitty were together. Of course they did. Of course uh, they yeah. did. Um, and this is because the thought of the time was that homosexual relationships were more likely to result in jealous violence than heterosexual relationships. 
Luckily, Marianne was quickly exonerated. Chris, but... let's all just sit with that one for a second, shall we? Like, yeah. once again, that absolute bullshit. Let's just... Yeah. Mm. So, in light of that, in light of how the police viewed homosexuality, it's, it's easy to see that Ross's I didn't want to get involved statement had less to do with not helping a neighbor and more to do with not wanting to deal with the police. Also, this is during a period of time, isn't it, where, like, the police are arresting gay men and beating them up. Yeah, pretty much. So I feel like reasonable anxiety in that situation. So most people, yeah, most people either ignore or don't know that fact, that he was a gay man. And, like, he's already in that situation is so deeply stressful, objectively. And the friend who told him not to get involved, I'm assuming, I'm not for sure on this, but I would assume probably knew he was gay yeah, and was probably part of that scene, and that's why they told him not to get involved. Yeah. And the fact that then he then goes and climbs across the roof, like, you cannot accuse that guy of not trying. Yeah. No, he absolutely could have shut the book on it after his friend said not to get involved, but then he mm-hmm. called another neighbor so you see, that's what thing. to I, do. I think that's the thing. I think his gut feeling said that he couldn't. Because um, you don't call somebody for a third opinion if you bought the second opinion outright. You're like, you know what, great, we're going with that. Exactly. So he called the neighbor and crawled across the apartment roof to call the police. That shows some pretty good effort on his part, even if it took a while. Mm-hmm. Like, you really cannot then say that he didn't try. Exactly. His absolute best. <laughs> yeah. Considering that, um, it kind of makes me question whether this is actually a good way to illustrate the bystander effect. I will say, like, there are two things I wanted to say about bystander effect, if mm-hmm. you don't mind. Like, the sure. one I heard is that if you speak in general statements in a situation like that, nobody answers them. So if you say somebody call an ambulance, nobody will. So what you have to do is you point at a specific person, you say, you call the ambulance, and they snap out of it. Mm-hmm. The amount of times that apparently snaps people out, and they're like, oh my god, yes, of course. No, that makes absolute sense. Like, if people are paralyzed or aren't sure what to do, like, being given an order would absolutely snap them out of it and be like, yes, thank you for giving me an order. I will do that. I know mm-hmm. what to do now. Because when people go into shock, well, actually, people are like, you give them a procedure to follow, you tell them what to do, and a lot of people are like, okay, that's what I do. Yeah. And I think the other one, it actually reminds me of a story my dad told me growing up. So my grandfather was in, my gramps was in the Second World War, prisoner of war, and escaped a prisoner of war camp. And mm-hmm. didn't ever really talk to my dad until I was born about yeah. what that had been like. He just didn't ever discuss it, apparently. Yeah. When they were young, when my dad was younger, they were walking along the road and a motorcycle accident happened and this guy crashed. He went straight off the bike and went flying. Mm-hmm. And my dad says he remembers there being this moment of like absolute silence where he just froze. Yeah. And think. And he looked up and apparently my gramps was already running straight towards the crash. Yeah. Because, and I think that tells something about like when people have, are used to having to respond in those hyper stressful situations and are almost... I want to say inoculated, but you know what I mean? I'm used to having to think suddenly in them. Yeah. They don't 
necessarily have that second. I mean, that just that just reminds me. There was one year when I was in high school. I was in the car with my sister at a stoplight, mm-hmm. and we witnessed a hit and run where the car that was hit actually swerved off the road, hit a light pole, went up the light pole, and flipped over. Oh my god. And my sister and I were both just so shocked by this, because it was, it was just feet away, away from yeah. where we were. We were so shocked that we just sat completely still for a few moments. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, other people quickly went out and got to her, and she seemed not to be, like, terribly hurt. She was able to sit up. They definitely called the ambulance to come and get her, but she wasn't, like, paralyzed or deathly injured or anything. But, yeah, that moment where it happens and it's just that shock that freezes you. Yeah, and I think we are social creatures and we take our cues as to how how to behave in new situations or stressful situations because they are new. That's why they're stressful. Yeah. Um, From other people because that's how they evolve. It's a survival tactic. You yeah. Know, if we all, you don't immediately go over and touch the dangerous thing that's just appeared. You all sort of see what everyone else is doing. And I think that is, yeah, I think that's what it is. Like, bystander effect is often described very negatively as something that's a conscious choice almost yeah. to be complacent. And I don't think it's that. I think it's a natural human instinct that we have to be aware of and try and counteract. Yeah. Well, and I did some further research into the bystander effect, and actually (laughs) many experiments into it have been inconclusive, especially when it was an emergency situation. There was a study in 2006 that tested bystander effect in emergency situations just to see if it would get the same results as the test by the people who originally coined the term. Yes. And the original tests were actually mostly non-emergency situations. Oh. What do they count as a non-emergency situation? Basically, uh, situations that didn't involve high potential danger, or, like, you could look at it and be like, that's not going to be something that immediately needs attention. So let's say somebody like, so non-emergency situation is somebody falls over and it yes. takes them two or three tries to get up, but they do eventually stand. Yes, that is exactly what it is. Right. I don't know about you, but I would pretend not to have noticed because it, it, cause British culture is like, that's embarrassing <laughs> for that person. And it's polite to pretend you haven't seen. Yeah. I probably would keep an eye on the person just to make sure they do get up. But yeah. Oh, no, I mean, like, once I'd seen they'd gotten up, I'd be like, nah, that's it. Oh, absolutely. So those were the type of situations that were originally tested. And the study in 2006 tested more emergency situations like smoke in a room or someone like they had, like, an actor fall over and have a heart attack or something like that. So, like, very Mm -hmm. clear emergency situations. Okay. And... It found that in situations with high potential danger, participants that were confronted with an emergency alone or in the presence of another person, in both instances, they shared the same likelihood of going to help the victim. It didn't matter whether they were alone or in a group. The result was still the same. 
And the bystander okay. effect is all about the group. So even if they're within a group, they'll still go and help. Yeah. And, and it suggests that in situations of greater seriousness, people are more likely to intervene and actually help out. Yeah. Considering that, it kind of makes me question how accurate bystander effect actually is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's definitely a kernel of truth in there that people do take cues from other people. But I don't think it's as prevalent in situations like this as people would make it out to be. Like, it definitely shouldn't be applied to Kitty's case, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's also a couple of other things I've noticed while researching the case that play into the fact that people didn't help out as much. And and one of that is that 911, which is our emergency phone number, it wasn't actually a thing at the time of the murder. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would do it. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people either forget that or don't know that, but... 911 had not been set up as the emergency call system in the USA. And in fact, Kitty's murder is considered to be one of the driving forces to setting up that system. Um, really? I didn't yeah. know that. It's kind of a lesser known fact. They, it's one of those things where there are several other high profile cases that are credited with it, but her case also played into it. Yeah. Up until the late 1960s, there was actually no centralized number for people to call in case of an emergency. So if someone needed to contact the police or fire department, they either had to directly call the nearest station or dial zero to reach an operator and then be connected. Honestly, I don't know about you, but I do not know the numbers of my nearest police station or fire station at all. Not Mm -mm. at all. Like, and the thing with the operator system is you're losing time at that yes, point. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in an emergency situation, it comes, it doesn't come just down to minutes, it's down to seconds. Yeah. Knowing that, it, it kind of makes me wonder if maybe that's why more people didn't call was because they, they didn't know the number or going through, like, the operator thing was just kind of, that was a whole extra step to deal with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If they didn't think that the attack was as serious as it was, which most of them didn't. Going through the operator was probably like that. I probably don't need to call 911 yeah, over this. The extra, the extra effort. Mm-hmm. So in 1968, which was almost four years after Kitty's murder, okay. AT&T, which operated nearly all of the telephone connections in the U.S. at the time, established the 911 line. Okay. They wanted a short, easy to remember, unique number, and 911 had never been used as an area code or service code before, so it was basically perfect. Yeah, I was going to say, so that's how they picked it. They tried to pick something that had never been used. Yes, something that had never been used and was easy to remember. And when it was implemented, it was organized so that the state public utility agencies had control so when calls came in those uh state public utility agencies would be able to answer those calls at a local level and would direct those calls to the nearest police or fire station Mm -hmm. to where that call was made in addition after her murder some states passed good samaritan laws 
which guaranteed legal protection to bystanders who came to the aid of someone in distress. So if you come to someone's aid and they pass away or some other type of situation where they would later either sue you or if they pass away and the state tries to be like you inadvertently had a hand in the murder, like that wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Can I just say like the concept of suing someone who tried to help you is so out of my mental scope culturally. Yeah. And I don't know what it is like I'm aware like that America has far more litigation generally. But I feel like just the concept of that is so bewildering yeah. to me. Well, I think it would come up more um in recent years just because with our healthcare system and how much it costs to even even be transported by an ambulance and like have medication and all that. If you get transported by an ambulance, you have to be the one to pay it. Mm -hmm. And so people who aren't able to afford it would more likely be like, no, don't call the ambulance for me. Yeah, I'm just going to say, say it. American healthcare is a dystopian nightmare. Oh, it's absolute shit. I hate it. And that is absolutely no condemnation of, like, American people, because I know the majority, the vast majority of you guys are not a fan of it either, because you're the ones actively getting screwed over by it. Yeah. I actually looked it up whilst we were talking, because I was curious, and the UK emergency service number predates the US. Because hmm. I was curious, because ours is very similar. Ours is 999. Yeah. Um, apparently it's the world's oldest one. I just wanted this quote I thought you'd like. Um, so the initial scheme covered a 12-mile radius around Oxford Circus, which is like a central area of London. Yeah. And the public were advised only to use it in ongoing emergency if, actual quote, for instance, the man in the flat next door to yours is murdering his wife, or you have seen a heavily masked cat burglar peering around the stack pipe of the local bank building. <laughs> oh. so until you, I just think the wording of that, and then apparently like um, it's extended after World War II and then to the whole UK in 1976. So if the US already had it as a national system, you had it yeah. before us. But we had the London system um, beforehand because everything in the UK in terms of politics and infrastructure is disgustingly London centric just saying yeah I believe that um when the 911 system was set up it was set up nationally just mm -hmm. straight away mm -hmm. yeah and like 999 turns out is for multiple countries so like Poland so when I lived in Warsaw 999 was the Polish emergency yeah. number and then a lot of the others, for example, like Hong Kong, Hong Kong and Ireland both have 999. And I wonder if that is because of the history of British Empire and colonisation. Anyway, sorry, continue. I thought that was like an interesting because I was just curious about the numbers. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much what I have for this case. Um, the thing that interested me most about it was the fact that there was no 911 system set up, which I personally think helped with people not really reporting what was happening. Yes. And I 
I personally think that the psychology books using this as a bystander effect example are completely wrong. I mean, maybe the way that's presented in the psychi psychology books is true, but like the actual situation itself, mm -hmm. there was a lot more that people didn't really get into. It sounds like the distorted version of the situation that's described in textbooks is maybe an example, but the actual truth of the real life situation isn't an example. Exactly. It definitely was not helped by that New York Times article, which was, until 2016, pretty much the main source of information for it. Screw you, Abe. Screw you, Abe. Yeah. So, final thoughts? Final thoughts? Final thoughts are that the, the bystander effect is a lot more complicated than what they make it out to be. Like most things in life. Yeah. Also, I know you asked about this earlier, but Kitty's girlfriend, Marianne, she went on to date someone else, but has stated that Kitty still lives on in her heart. So she remembers Kitty uh, very strongly. I think the part that gets me for like final thoughts about this story, this is a case where it's supposed to talk about how awful human beings can be, right? Mm -hmm. And how complacent they can be. And there's that quote, and I can't remember who said it, and if anyone knows, like, feel free to comment, but it's the one about, like, any time there's a disaster, like, look for the helpers, there's always people helping. Yeah. And so for me, I just think about that neighbour that, like, held her. I don't know. I'm actually getting a little bit emotional about it. <laughs> um, no, it's okay. I got emotional reading about her, too. She was absolutely a hero, and she was an older woman, too. I want to say in her 60s or 70s. Yeah. I'm going to be honest, not really down for getting murdered anytime soon. But <laughs> I feel like if I had to die in a violent and distressing way, having someone there mm -hmm. who cared yes. would mean a lot. Um, yes. I hope that gave some peace because I know her brother did a lot of there's like a documentary I think about the Kitty Genovese case that he yeah there is it was a documentary about him looking into the case I believe mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. following him as he went around and asked why people didn't help her and and I think that's actually when the information about Sophia came out the woman who held her so I kind of hope that maybe gave her family a little bit of comfort like, it's the tiniest, like, scrap, but it's something. Yeah. And it doesn't cancel out what was done, but it's still something. Yeah. Dead Cat on the Line is written and produced by Ali Drain and Sarah Caulfield. Sound editing is done by Ruth Brown. For more information, you can find us at Dead Cat Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. No cats were harmed in the making of this podcast. We even have a real live one. You can see him on our social media pages. Thanks for listening. Like I said before, I'm going to go find one of my Hello Kitty toys and hug it for a while. <laughs> Yeah, um, I'm gonna cuddle with my cat for a bit. <laughs>
Yeah, I don't have. I look, look. I don't have a cat, but I have a My Melody soft toy. It's the closest thing I've got at this point. So. Excellent. 